0: thanks mark for taking the time to do this i appreciate it
1: oh my pleasure sammy thanks for thanks for having me i, I appreciate the support we're mm-hmm. excited
0: yo welcome to my summer lair i'm your host sammy currently in detention at ridgemont high for 48 hours unanime And welcome Mark Altman to the program. You may know him from his work on hit TV shows like Castle and The Librarians, or perhaps you've read some of his comic book adaptations for Star Trek or those oral history books on Battlestar Galactica and Buffy. He's an accomplished writer, producer, and deep diver of all things geeky. His latest project as a writer... And TV producer is Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982, which you can stream on the CW app. At the movies, 1982 is a year of cosmic wonders and electric dreams. E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Blade Runner, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist, Tron, Conan the Barbarian, The Thing, Rocky Three, so much more. Eddie Murphy's film debut in 48 hours. That list is not even exhaustive. 1982 was magic. So, to navigate all of that awesome is the CW's greatest geek year ever, 1982, which uncovers the secrets, stories, and epic moments that shaped our geeky lives. Probably still shape our geeky lives. This isn't using nostalgia. As a time machine, greatest geekier ever is a recognition of how our geek history still impacts our present and the unique, charmingly demented individuals we've all grown up to become. (laughs) As you'll hear, what's super fun about Mark's work is that he's not afraid to get his hands all nerdy. He's like a pop culture archaeologist, digging up hidden gems and bringing them back to life for a whole new generation of fans. This my Summer layer conversation is sparked by his experiences co-creating Greatest Geek Year Ever, as well as some delightful 80s-related tangents, including one about Knight Rider. Oh, yo, you can hear the Knight Rider theme song in your head right now, can't you? If you're passionate about all things 80s and beyond, if you're a fan of pop culture and the impact it has on our present era, or if you just enjoy two geeks getting all geeky in public talking about the Greatest Geek Year Ever, This episode is dedicated to you. This time traveling podcast extravaganza begins with my 1982 shameful confession.
1: Sound, the final frontier. My summer lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan
0: you're ready to go uh we'll just kind of jump in and talk about all the fun that was 1982 yeah
1: whenever 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 you're you're good to go I'm, uh, I'm 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 ready sure actually
0: i i was debating if i should open with a confession because i was watching your docuseries and i've never seen megaforce is it too late
1: <laughs>
0: is it too late to go back and watch it have i missed well, the moment
1: you know Oh Sammy, it's never too late. What did they said, Thirty Rockets? never too late for now. Mm-hmm. It's never too late for Megaforce okay. because the thing is, it never gets better. It's always, <laughs> it, every, I mean, it, it, it truly is in that rarefied air of Plan Nine from outer space and the Apple, mm-hmm. and you know all these these classic terrible movies that are somehow wildly enjoyable mm-hmm. and you know i i don't mind criticizing it because no one is funnier and more self-deprecating about it than barry boswick yeah he was documentary. great in your doctor I mean, series so <laughs> it really is such an artifact of the the age and it is kind of instructional because you know that was a movie that was kind of made you know obviously um the director uh was a famous stunt man uh but also it was sort of made at the behest of a toy company you know they created mattel did the um the toys and the um and the costumes Mm -hmm. and you know Oh, before IP Mania, this was the equivalent of the kinds of movies. This is what you get when there's no one with a real vision. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you could see Al Ruddy, the producer of The Godfather, it wrote, co-wrote <laughs> and produced it. But this is not The Godfather.
0: <laughs> no, it didn't even look close to The Godfather. But I was like, watching and, and, the clips, I was like, man, it, I want to check this out. I never got around to it. I'm kind of fired for that.
1: It, 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 and I have to admit, I'll be honest, I'll make an admission to you mm. now that I did not see Megaforce back in the eighties. It was many years later. So, you know, I, that famous opening weekend when Blade Runner and the the thing opened and Megaforce, Mm -hmm. uh, I did not see Megaforce. Then I did not see it when it came out on, uh, uh, VHS. Mm -hmm. I did not have the video game that Brian Cranston did the commercial for as a young boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, so it was only many years later that I discovered the joys of Megaforce. And I was so glad to be able to include in the movie because, again, you know, B- Boswick is so fantastic in the series talking about Megaforce. Yeah, And it, it kind of is sort of like, you know, after you have you know, your steak and your serious appetizer and it's the dessert, <laughs> we, you know, you got your, uh, your appetizer, which is the thing, and then you get the sweet dessert, which is Megaforce. So I, I particularly love that episode where we deal with the three of them.
0: This is a bit of a tangent. It's not related per se to your docuseries. But what was the deal with all the cars back in the 80s? Like the General Lee, the DeLorean, the 18 van, Night Rider, Megaforce. What was the fascination with like well, souped
1: up it, That's vehicles? a good question. I mean, the General Lee, you know, dates back to the 70s. But, you know... It's a good question because some of these are such iconic cars. I mean, like Night Rider, uh, we originally wanted to include all the TV series, 82 also. Mm-hmm. And we just realized we, we couldn't, or this would have been a 40-part series, right? Yeah. And um, Night Rider was one of the shows that debuted in 1982. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because I have, you know, very good friends that actually have replicas of that car who have the Knight Rider, who have the William Daniels Answers. Uh, a voice in in the car and, you know, God knows what they spent for it. And (laughs) and one of my friends is an Emmy winner. And then, you know, I don't know if I won an Emmy, if I would go and celebrate by buying myself a Knight Rider car, (laughs) but apparently he did. And uh, you're right. crime—that was also part of it. Yeah. Totally. I also think it's the way we collected toys because I think now people collect action figures and they primarily play, you know, photorealistic video games. Back then, you know, we had Corgis, and we had Matchbox, and so, like, you would play with the the A-Team van, or you would play with the Knight Rider car, or you would mm-hmm. play with a lot of these, you know, the James Bond vehicles, you know, all through uh, um, the obviously 70s and 80s and 60s. There were amazing James Bond cars, starting with the Aston Martin, of course, but, you know, in the 70s, you had the submarine car, Inspire, Love Me, and in the 80s, you had the new version of the Aston Martin, Living Daylights, and... Um, you know, 83 was the Battle of the Bonds octopus. He had that, you know, the, when uh, Vijay Amitra says, oh, there's a company car and he has the little car and it suddenly starts going in India and starts yeah. to go wildly, <laughs> you know, speed through the streets. Mm-hmm. of. Uh, so it, it's um, I, I think that's part of it. But I also think they were just really cool and they usually did cool things. You know, again, it's not the 80s, but like the submarine car. in I love me. Mm -hmm. I mean, how cool is it that a car that can go underwater and work like a submarine and then come back on dry land? I mean, it's remarkable. It's super fun. And I I think that's why we were, uh, you know, obsessed by cars, you know. Mm -hmm. And then Christine, obviously. It's funny because that was, um, well, you know, Carpenter had wanted to do after the thing, Christine and Firestarter universal but because the thing was such a bomb it ended up you know not happening there i mean he ended up having to go to another studio because after the thing it sort of killed his chances and i mean that was the thing that was um you know so uh, mortifying him he, at the time he was married to adrian barbeau he comes back from a vacation you know a week or two before the thing opens and he sees et on the cover of rolling stone <laughs> yeah. you know friendly alien and he, yeah. he realizes oh my god the thing's gonna bomb mm-hmm. and it was you know it was mortifying to him it was and he was right obviously that we love the thing now and it's a brilliant movie but it made 12 cents at the box office yeah. back in 82
0: which is funny too because another one that's in the docu series is blade runner and that struggled to find an audience as well it's weird yeah, i that mean the,
1: these beloved uh, movies
0: now we're like audiences are like i don't know what to do with this this is weird
1: there's an old expression about you know films and tv being ahead of their time and that kind of is the thing that directors or studios use as an excuse to explain why something doesn't work right you know oh uh, uh you know that movie didn't uh, you know it didn't work because it was ahead of its time but blade runner truly was ahead of its time mm-hmm. and it's so interesting because even now and i think we deal with this in the, in the in the series there's still a debate going on you know was the original theatrical version with the harrison ford narration you know um good or is the definitive version the final version? Uh, we're without the narration, which was, re, you know, re-edited many years later and re-released. And you you can hear, you know, among even the filmmakers and the actors and obviously the fans, uh, n- there's no consensus. Mm. I mean, Michael Dealey, the producer, says there's a consensus, that, you know, because Ridley says the final version where Harrison is a replicant and there's no narr- is the definitive version. But uh, I think what's, what we made very clear is there is no consensus. There's a very strong difference of opinion among people about what is the definitive version or the best version of Blade Runner. But clearly, that was a movie that was ahead of its time, like 2001, because it it continues to. There's probably no movie that is more influential than maybe Alien, you know, that Blade Runner continues to influence the state of science fiction, you know, 40 plus years later.
0: Yeah, this is one of the things watching your docu-series that uh, I kind of missed from like the way we have now with Netflix and everything is like the element of surprise because a lot of this IP Mm -hmm. was brand new so I can get sort of why the audience may not know what a Blade Runner is and I when I watched like the thing I didn't know what a John Carpenter was at that point right so and at least with with Blade Runner (laughs) I knew Harrison Ford was the dude from Star Wars so I had some reference but for the most part it's all like an element of surprise you don't really know what any of these movies are or they're going to be
1: yeah. No, that's a great point. I mean, you know, the thing is, what was wonderful about that era and about the movie, maybe we saw an ad in the newspaper, you know, maybe, you know, Star Trek Two. you knew it was a sequel to Star Trek One, but you didn't really know much. Mm-hmm. And there was a magic to that, you know, there were no spoilers. You know, there were, you you rarely, in most cases, if you hadn't seen the trailer in a theater, you hadn't seen the trailer because mm-hmm. there's no internet. There's no um, uh, no way to see this stuff. So you go kind of in unspoiled and that made it, you know, rather magical, you know, and it made, and it was hard to see a movie. You couldn't reserve seats. So you'd wait online. And if it was a popular movie, often maybe you couldn't get into the two o'clock show. So you've been waiting around two hours for the next show. And what do you have to do? You talk to the people who are standing in line with you about what you've seen recently, what you're seeing. And so there was a much more profound sense of discussion about movies and their part. They weren't as disposable. Nobody called movies content back in 82. Yeah, You know, it's the, in the best cases they were art, but if not, they were entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, but they weren't content.
0: But it's also community. Cause there, there is a very subtle, like love letter, I guess, to, to going to the cinema that runs through greatest geek year ever. Um, and I know you worked in a video rental store for a bit too, right? Which is where we discovered some of these movies because we weren't old enough to get into them or couldn't like get to them or whatever.
1: Wow, you did your homework, Sammy. Oh yeah, <laughs> you did your homework. That is that is true. I worked at a Leo's Video Bin in Brooklyn, New York, when I was in high school. So probably in '82, I was already working in a video store, and that was that was such a novel. Uh, a job that will never really exist again. And, um, and that was where you got, that was a big part of, again, the pre-internet discussion because people come into the store and they say, oh, do you have, uh, you know, do you have the road warrior in? And mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh no, I'm sorry, Ralph Because maybe the guy only ordered two or three copies, the owner, because he didn't realize it was like a great movie. And then they say, well, what else is good? And you'd start to, you'd be like an encyclopedia, and this is no I, you'd be a walking IMDb and say, well, maybe you want to look at this or may, you know, try Conan the Barbarian or, you know, if you, you like sort of cheesy sword of sorcery, maybe sword of the sorcery you might enjoy <laughs> yeah. or, yeah. you know, open to trying a horror movie, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 or, you know, or if you want to share something to watch with the kids, maybe Dark Crystal, you know, and, and, uh, it's It was so wonderful because you, you – and then you'd get into conversations uh, with the people who came into the store. And it's funny because even then you'd have the owner saying, well, whatever we have 12 copies of, that's what you should push. And mm-hmm. I always push back on that because I could not recommend a- – I did not want to recommend a bad movie. Mm-hmm. I remember many years later, you know, we had like I was working in college at a video store. And we had like hundreds of copies of Superman Four, The Quest for Peace. Right. And he says, We can't give these away. You gotta tell people it's good, so they'll rent it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not telling people yeah. they trust me, yeah. not that Superman Four, the Quest for Peace is a good movie. I'm sorry, I won't do it.
0: <laughs> this is an interesting element as well that runs through uh, 1982, which is it kind of developed a lot of taste. Right? Like, it, it, now we know what kind of is good taste, what is quality. Yes, The Thing and Blade Runner bombed, but over time, we've proven, like, that these are good films, and, like, like if you're going to become interested in film, this is part of your homework. And so, it's interesting how, well, because of all this imagination created taste.
1: Well, look at, uh, that's a re- really good point. And look at the level of film discourse at the time. It was on a much more erudite scale. You had Pauline Kale and Jack Kroll and Vincent Camby and obviously even Siskel and Ebert you know, on television, who were the nation's film critics for all intents and purposes. Mm. They, they talked about film with love and understanding and an understanding of the past. And people went into movies not expecting to hate things. Right. So you would find what was good about it. You could see a movie that was inherently flawed and still you know, find what was good about it. Like and, and, you know, Look, something like Tron, Tron. like Well, like Megaforce, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, there, there are a lot of movies that came out, you know, that, that aren't, you know, perfect, and yet you would find the good in them. And if you talked about what didn't work, you talked about it on a much more critical level, maybe the writing, the cinematography, the directing, you know, rather than just saying that was crap, you know, because now people are competing to have the most clever, especially when you're trying to distill your thoughts down to 140 words, or 140 characters, mm-hmm. you're trying to find the pithiest and, and pissiest <laughs> most uh, criticism of a movie. Right. But back then when you were criticizing something, you know, it was much more articulate. And I think, you know, that's why, You know, even the films which necessarily aren't as good still like resonate for us because, you know, I make the argument in the documentary that it's not necessarily the greatest movie going year at all time, but it is the greatest geek year. But other people like Scott Mance, you know, truly believe it is the greatest year for movies ever. But, you know, that's why you could go to a movie that cost a million dollars like Sword and Sorcerer compared to Conan's $40 million and still really enjoy it. And in many cases, you know, four decades later, still be talking about it. You know, Lee Horsley's, you know, three bladed, you know, sword (laughs) and uh, things like that. And uh, Richard Lynch is the evil villain and, you know, stuff like Beastmaster, you know, which is $4 million, you know, you still love and you don't say, oh, it looks cheap and cheesy. You just remember that you love it and uh, you know it was so funny at the time because hbo and would reinforce it because it would be on all the time and everybody called hbo hey beastmaster's on station <laughs> just like later on they would say tbs the beastmaster station yeah. and you know the, the their biggest movie was gone with the wind followed by you know the beastmaster and that was a four million dollar movie mm-hmm. you know now most tv is made for more more than four million dollars an episode game of thrones so it's um it, yeah like Game of Thrones, right? Mm-hmm. Like, could you imagine if Game of Thrones looked like the Beastmaster? Be I don't amazing. think people would be having it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd watch that. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> but you just used a, a key phrase that like that enjoyment that people got out of these movies. Because almost all the guests that you have in this docuseries, they're laughing and they're smiling and they're reminiscing and like they're having a good time as they talk about the movies from nineteen eighty two, whether they were in them or whether they went and saw them. And so can you just yeah, give thank us thank you for saying that. Like, can you give us like a little brief list of like who's in it? Because they these people are clearly having fun and like it was a good year for them. 1982.
1: Well, thank you for saying that, because I I truly believe I think why the TV show works so well and why people seem to 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 love it so much is because of the mix of people who were there, people who made the movies and people who love the movies. Mm -hmm. So you go from, you know, maybe for Blade Runner, you know, a Sean Young and Joanna Cassidy and the the producer Michael Dealy and Paul Salmon, who wrote the book, to a bunch of, you know, professional fans, you know, because the fans in our, our documentary are all professionals who've gone on and been very successful doing other things. So you have somebody like screenwriter Zach Penn, who did Ready Player One, or Mark Guggenheim, who did Legends of Tomorrow, or, or Darren Scott, who produced A Menace to Society, you know, or critics like Grey Drake or or, um, Sean Edwards or Scott Mance. So it's such a great mix because it's the people that made it who had one perspective and that the people who were affected by it, who love it, you know, or somebody like Felicia Day, um, you know, or uh, um, all these wonderful wonderful people. So, you know, it's great. Like I looked at uh, in the second week, we deal with Star Trek two. It's such a great combination because you got Bill Shatner and Nick Meyer, but then you have all these people who were impacted by the movie, you know, talking about what it meant to them and why it was such a special experience. So I, I love that combination because a lot of times in these kinds of, because we really truly like the Ewoks celebrate the love. This is all about (laughs) A passion for the movie-going experience, for an era of movies that will never come again. And uh, it it really is a celebration. And particularly, you know, we're in the middle of summer 2023. Mm -hmm. And uh, to look back, you know, 40 years earlier and, and look at this amazing group of films... And, you know, they all spoke to different people because we haven't even touched on like the horror films. There's a whole generation that, you know, came, you know, of age watching those horror movies, whether it be on VHS or home video or, um, you know, in the movies. And, you know, it's such a great year because in the same way that, you know, you look now at a lot of the movies that are being made by people who grew up loving you know, comic books or the movies of the 80s. Back then, you had these filmmakers who grew up loving the movies of the 50s. So, or the comic books of the 50s. So, you have Paul Schrader doing Cat People, right. you know, or John Carpenter doing The Thing. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in George Romero's case, it's Stephen King doing Creepshow. You mm-hmm. know, this generation of filmmakers that grew up on movies in the 50s paying homage to what they loved. Mm-hmm. In the same way that filmmakers today are paying homage to the comic books and uh, movies uh, and TV that they grew up on, because even something like Creepshow was based on the EC comic books right. of um, you know the '50s that you know George Romero and uh, Stephen King loved so much.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that's interesting too is the credits for the end of the first episode. It says "In memory of Frederick S. Clark," who was Frederick that- S. Clark for people that don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you noticed that because, you know, obviously, you know, not a lot of people watch the credits, but Fred Clark was the editor and publisher of Cinefantastic magazine. And Cinefantastic was like the New Yorker of sci-fi magazines. Mm -hmm. You know, it started in the seventies and, you know, Starlog was probably, you know, the more populist one, but the more, um, the more deeper dive, the, the, the one that took the genre seriously was Cinefantastic and it covered all these movies and it covered it, them all in a serious way. And said that uh, in his mid fifties uh, about 20 years ago, but the legacy of Cinefantastic, which influenced so many of us, uh, uh, you know, continues to live on. And that's why we felt it was worth dedicating this in the memory of uh, Fred Clark, who was uh, such a, a special guy? And, you know, may not be a household word the way Stan Lee is, or um, you know, Forrest Ackerman. You know, mm-hmm. to geeks, but uh, he is—he is—he belongs on the Mount Rushmore of uh, science, you know, science fiction magazine re- journalistic legends.
0: Yeah, this idea of like nerding out or geeking out—I—I um, want to like pick up on this one thread because in the greatest geek year ever, 1982, there's an interesting contradiction where. Some of these movies were blockbusters, literal blockbusters. People were lining up around the block to kind of get into them. But at the same time, nerds or geeks were also social outcasts. So it's an interesting uh, contradiction because it's like everyone's watching them. Everyone's digging them. But at the same time, people are having a hard time fitting in, if that makes sense.
1: I think it's very interesting because you're absolutely right. These were huge blockbusters. But... You know, I I, I think that a, te- a testament to their entertainment, but why resonated for so much more with geek culture and, and we're geeks, geek, geeks, it was not now everyone's a geek, right? Right. In, in 2023, thanks you to know, Marvel. people use computers and cell phones and thanks to Marvel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, everyone considers themselves a geek back then. It was a, a nerdy subculture. It wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily cool to be a geek. So I think when geeks found each other, these movies were kind of like Oasis that brought the geeks together. And again, part of that was standing online. And then, you know, maybe the people you'd meet, you say, hey, let's go get a DD campaign together or let's go do this. And that's how you would meet people. It's kind of the equivalent of the internet now, meeting people, you know, uh, um, online. But th- there you were literally literally meeting people on a line. And, uh, and that's how you would... Sometimes, you know, make friends or, or find like-minded people, mm-hmm. you know, or find your tribe, so to speak. And these movies were sort of the magnet that brought these like-minded individuals together. Because chances are, if you met somebody who was waiting two hours online for Star Trek Two, they probably liked Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> you know, or somebody who was waiting online two hours for Conan the Barbarian, chances are maybe they liked Robert E. Howard or Frank Frazetta, you know, that you had something in common with them. You know, and the same thing with the uh, you know with the horror films and stuff. So it's um, it, it, it's really interesting. And then you you do have these incredible mainstream movies that come out that year, also that are remarkable. You know, Forty Eight Hours, Tootsie, uh, which you know was one of the top movies of the year. I mean, one of the most successful movies of the year. We don't really talk about that much in the documentary. It's Officer and Gentleman. That's right. Yeah, but that is also part of this phenomena that's going on, which is suddenly. The emergence of MTV in 83 becomes, I mean, in, sorry, in 81 becomes really significant in terms of marketing in 82, because all of a sudden a hit song on MTV can open a movie. So, Arthur and Gentleman, as as great as that movie is, that movie opens because of the success of the Joe Cocker, Jennifer Warren song, right. which you couldn't avoid. Rocky 3 becomes a phenomenon, not because it's the third Rocky movie, but because of Eye of the Tiger, which is everywhere. You can't go anywhere without hearing Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. And it's a very different kind of Rocky movie. Right. The
0: first two Rockies were kind of a smaller, intimate movie, whereas this one is more of a kind of leaning towards a blockbuster kind of mentality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love in the documentary when David Goodman points out that after these two serious, one of them an Oscar award winning movie, suddenly this is the equivalent of a superhero movie, you know, because basically uh, Rocky teams up with his old nemesis. And of course it has this huge song, Eye of the Tiger, Mm -hmm. which we all listen to, you know, incessantly and never got bored of unlike some other songs. (laughs) And uh, it was, it was pretty remarkable. And I love that insight into Rocky three because people forget Rocky three was a phenomenon in a way that Rocky one and Rocky two weren't. Those are great, great movies. But Rocky Three was like this incredible phenomenon, and it's suddenly this boxing movie. You know, it wasn't Raging Bull. You know, it was it, it appealed to kids. It was you know something that everyone wanted to see. And you know what a year for Sly. I mean, to have Rocky Three and First Blood come out. Yeah. I mean, Rambo was born that year. Became Act First Blood is a really good film mm-hmm. directed by Todd Co- Ted Kotchev. And Sly is great in it. Mm-hmm. And you have so many of these movies where you had actors who were doing multiple movies that year. I mean, you had Meryl Streep in Sophie's choice and still a night, Jessica Lange, who was in, um, Tootsie and Francis. And of course, uh, you know, you had Clint Eastwood in Firefox, honky <laughs> yes. tonk man, right. you know, so, so, so many of these films, you know, people would be in not one, but two significant movies that year. Um, and it's really, um, And, of course, Shatner, most of all, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Airplane II, the sequel. So it's a great year for Bill, (laughs) which is magic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like those airplane movies. So just to wrap up now, the greatest geek year ever, 1982, will be on the CW. Yeah. uh, As the series rolls around, it's a docuseries, a four-part docuseries, as each episode airs every Saturday. Are you expecting certain '80s movies to kind of suddenly start showing up on like the streaming like charts and stuff like this? Like all of a sudden, there's like a hunger now for a Poltergeist or the, the well, thing. Well, I'll tell
1: you, I, I I couldn't imagine a better home for this uh uh a, a greatest geek year ever, 1982, the CW. But CW has traditionally been a home for geek entertainment, you know, with the Arrowverse mm-hmm. and uh with all the um, you know amazing sci-fi and fantasy shows that they've done in you know. The the past, you know, decades. So it's such a great fit. And it's such a great schedule to have this on Saturday nights in July, because Mm -hmm. it brings back the feeling of being a kid going to the movies, you know, so I, you know, my advice is to make some microwave popcorn, go get your, you know, good and plenties plop yourself down in front of the TV every Saturday starting July 8th and uh, watch these because it's going to bring back so many memories. And I think you're going to learn a, a few cool things about, you know, these movies you love and you might even learn about some movies you never knew about like Megaforce, right? Megaforce. Look at you. You're you ready to go see Force now. I got to so
0: wrap this up so I can watch Megaforce.
1: That's right. And if people miss it, and if people aren't geeks and they're not home on a Saturday night, they can always watch it on the app, or the premiere is going to be repeated on Tuesday the 11th. So plenty of opportunities to watch it and relive those memories. that we, And 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 for, I think for kids, it's going to be really eye-opening. This is going to be like an alien world for them, mm-hmm. that this is really the way people watch movies. This is really the way people celebrate movies. Oh my God, all those movies came out in 1982. How is that possible? Right. That's why I made it with Scott and Roger. And I'm so proud of it and so excited that, you know, I get to share it with the world in July.
0: It's tons of fun. So it's the greatest geek year ever, 1982. Thank you so much, yeah. Mark, for like hanging out and like geeking out with me. Cause uh, that No, was, my
1: pleasure, Sammy. That was an Just awesome year. Just remember one thing. Mm-hmm. Just remember one thing before you go. What's that? The good guys always win, even in the 80s. <laughs> there we
0: go. See, this <laughs> <been> a little <laughs> lesson for the kids, a little takeaway for the kids. You're an inspiration. You and Megaforce. <laughs>
1: So thank you <laughs> Well, so take much. care. Thanks. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it.
0: Yo, that was Mark Altman. Geeking Out Over Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982 on The CW. And I'm Sam Union host of My Summer Lair. Blessed are the geek, for they shall inherit the earth. The prophecy has come true since Star Wars opened in 1977. As you heard, Mark, he makes the case 1982 was just a great geek year, not necessarily the greatest year in cinema. And you know, I don't know. I believe you can make the case for greatest year in cinema. Now, I didn't go to the cinema for most of the 1982 movies. I was still Little Sammy. Going to the movies was an experience, something I did only a couple of times a year. Watching this docuseries, I don't know how these classic movies came into my life. I don't know why or how I watched the thing, but I'm glad I did. Even as a kid... The thing made way more sense and appealed to my flourishing sci-fi taste than E.T. Poltergeist. Poltergeist was super creepy and scary as a kid. The, The clown. The tree. The muddy swimming pool. Damn. Until you get older and realize for a horror movie, nobody died. Seriously? There's no body count for a horror movie? That was made and broadcast in the era of the slasher? It wasn't until I got to high school that I found other people who watched Blade Runner and were willing to debate Harrison Ford's Pinocchio status. Mark briefly talked about working in a video rental store. As always, when we talk about these things, it's not that I'm glorifying the past or have some sort of desire to return to a more cumbersome time. Trust me, (laughs) when it's the dead of winter in January and there is snow falling... Netflix is amazing, I'm thankful and I'm grateful. I'm not putting on pants and trudging to the video store. That being said, there is a significant loss we should acknowledge from when we transition from VHS rentals and even late night cable TV to streaming. Online we pine for Blockbuster in a way we don't crave late night cable. Yet late night cable is where I discovered a number of classic 1982 movies. When you watch Greatest Geek Year Ever 1982 on The CW, you quickly realize the spectrum is what made the year so special. Our pop culture was so broad because we were just consuming all of the stuff. It was only later that we became selective or snobby and perhaps sophisticated, defending our taste with phrases like guilty pleasure. I like so much that we opened this conversation with Megaforce. That's right, out of all of those 1982 movies, we started with Megaforce. Initially and wonderfully, 1982 gifted us this broad foundation of fantastic images stitched together from flipping through late night TV channels, taking risks at the video store when inevitably we discover a moment that would make us stop and ask, what is happening here? Who are these characters? There was no context for anything. That took a while to develop. Greatest Geek Gear Ever 1982 successfully demonstrates back then pop culture was a surprise party and you were the guest of honor. This is a fantastic and fun docu-series. From all kinds of recent Star Trek TV shows to the Marvel explosion, 1982 made a significant contribution as one of the key reasons of how our pop culture got here. My hope is Greatest Geek Year Ever 1982 is successful. The CW is so impressed. The green light greatest geek year ever, 1984, as a follow-up. Man, if you think 82 was nuts, 84 was wild. For now, check out the docu-series on The CW, and today, right now, sign up for My Pal Sammy newsletter on Substack. Trends, not takes. With the My Pal Sammy newsletter, you'll savor insights into the cutting-edge world of popular culture. Discover new perspectives via the My Summer Layer podcast relish thought-provoking essays and fancy, remarkable photos. All of it will deepen your pop culture passions and help you impress your friends and even convert strangers into pals with your knowledge. Mysummerlayer.com/subscribe Mysummerlayer.com/subscribe Trust me, unlike your hair choices during Picture Day, back at school in 1982, I promise, you won't regret it. Thank
1: you for listening to me in a Netflix world. 1982, yo!